You're listening to Autumn on the Air, the weekly podcast that brings you conversations about the impact of research commercialization and the people who make it happen. Join us for interviews with patent and licensing professionals, innovators, entrepreneurs, and tech transfer leaders on the issues and trends that matter most. Keep listening for an inside track on the people, IP policies, and politics changing our world. Welcome to Autumn on the Air. Today we're continuing our Hispanic Heritage Month series, and joining us is Oriana Papenzogabi, CEO and co-founder of AOA DX. With a background in creating market entry strategies and product launches, including launching nationwide HPV screening in East Africa and novel diagnostics in maternal fetal medicine, Oriana has received numerous awards in entrepreneurship including the Massachusetts Life Sciences Center Mass Next Gen Award and the Wave Summit's Emerging Woman Founder in Bio Award. Welcome, Oriana. I'm so excited to have you here on the air. Thank you. I'm very excited to be here. Oriana, I'm so excited to have you here on the podcast today. And I want to get into it by asking you about your journey into the biotech industry and what ultimately led you to co-found AOA DX. Sure. Um, a little bit of serendipity, a little bit of luck, and I guess a lot of hard work. Um, but originally, I started I'm, I'm an immigrant to the U.S. I started on a path, um, on a very linear path to become a doctor. I, you know, liked the sciences, and I thought, if you like the sciences, then the career path for you is, is going to be a doctor. My mom's a doctor, so it, it, it felt naturally fitting. Um, lo and behold, my first year at Boston University, when I was deep as a pre-med studying biochemistry, and I realized, oh, no, this is not really what I love, but I really like the sciences. And so thinking about what a career in the sciences looked like 15 years ago was not at all what the landscape looked like today. And um, I took an internship um, in during my time at Boston University at an early stage company called Amnesure International. And this was a, a woman's health company selling a device into the high risk pregnancy space before the word femtech existed or women's health was even cool. Um, and um, that was the serendipity part. And uh, I fell in love with it. And that is where I went. My first co-founder, Anna. Um, and uh, really began to get an interest in, in a career in the life sciences, a career in biotech um, from an, a non-technical expertise. So I worked in, in business development. I worked um, early in the days of how do you take this technology that was made in the U.S. for the U.S. outside of the U.S. to serve other types of patients. I speak many different languages. And so originally, one of my first tasks was translating marketing material. So um and, and from there, this is where the luck part kind of comes in. The company was acquired um, by a larger biotech company that gave me a, a grand opportunity to, to go and work at those headquarters, which was in Germany. Um, and then in comes the hard work where I worked really, really hard to prove myself early in my career um, to establish um, my track record you know, as, as a high-performing individual, um, and then also to kind of hone in on that passion around women's health. So... It began there. Um, along that way, Anna and I also met Alex, um, who's our third co-founder. And after that acquisition, and we spent some time at, at the Acquirer, uh, we went on to join a couple of other uh, great people who started a company out of the Harvard Innovation Lab, also focused on women's health. So now, the three of us weren't founders. Um, but we were very early stage in working with, with that group. Um, 
and saw that company go through from the very early days from inception all the way through to acquisition and, and you know getting a product approved by the FDA. Um, and at that point, the three of us, you know, we'd been working together for over 10 years and um, had um, the audacity to believe that we could do this ourselves. <laughs> um, and, you know, we, we, we were right. Uh, I think we were right. And um, from there, we founded AOA uh, on the precipice of, or on the premise, I should say, of diagnostics and women's health are terrible. It is terrible. Yeah. Absolutely terrible. We are underfunded. We are under researched. We are not well taken care of. And we wanted to do something about it. Right. And it was a mix of sort of indignation and also combined with experience and passion that said, you know, how are we going to tackle this? Because as I said, I, I tried to be a doctor. Turns out I did not end up being a doctor. Um, and neither of my co founders are either engineers or scientists. So we always knew that, it, you know, we weren't going to be the people that, excuse me, that developed something from scratch. Um, and so it took us about a year. We went out. We First, we started with a market landscape of what are the big problem areas in women's health diagnostics? Where, where are we challenged? And ovarian cancer was among them, but as was endometriosis and preeclampsia and just a number of other difficult conditions to diagnose. Um, and then we took to the research and we met with academics and technology transfer offices and we scoured patents and abstracts and conferences and talks. And we said, who's working on something really exciting? Who's researching it? And how can we translate that into a technology that could serve patients? Um, and in late 2019, we met Professor Sarah Govey and that was the beginning of AOA. Wow. That's an incredible journey. And you mentioned that you're an immigrant. Um, can you tell us um, when you came to the U.S. and where from? Yeah, my mother is originally Venezuelan, and that's where I was born. My father is Lebanese, and so I grew up most of my life in the Middle East. I went uh, to boarding school in Europe for, for a point, uh, for high school. And from there, I moved to the U.S., to Boston first, um, for university, as a freshman at Boston University. That was my first entry into the U.S., and uh, I stayed, um, minus the stint that I did in Germany for a few years. Wow. And, you know, Oriana, uh, it's Hispanic Heritage Month, and this is a time to celebrate the rich contributions and cultural diversity within the Hispanic community. Can you share any personal experiences or traditions from your heritage that have had meaningful impact as an entrepreneur in the biotech industry? A hundred percent. I alluded to it a little bit, but my first job, I was hired because I spoke Spanish and could translate some of the marketing material uh, to be able okay. to um, think about how we could bring this technology to South America. So this company, when I started working for them, had um, gotten their FDA clearance, were actively selling in the U.S., um, had already you know, set up a distribution channels in Europe. But outside of that was a really an untapped opportunity that included South America, that included the Middle East. That included Asia and many other continents and countries around the world. And at the time, they were really looking for somebody to help um, translate and, and find distributors in South America. And it was my background, my experience, not just the ability to speak the language, but, but the fact that I, had, I, I was from that culture and I could understand that the way you sell into South America isn't necessarily the way you would sell in the United States. Everything ranging from the way you establish relationships with your distribution channel partners all the way to the healthcare systems. And I, again, I, I thought I was going to be a doctor. And at one point, I had spent an entire summer interning at a hospital in Venezuela. Um, so I was more familiar, really, with, with um, the way that the healthcare system worked in South America. And even though it's unique country by country, I could bring that 
experience from my culture, from my heritage into the workplace, from the language all the way to the different cultural barriers that we face across, um, across, across all the different cultures. Um, and I think that was really valuable in, um, in my experience and what kicked off my career, essentially. Oriana, let's dig in on AOA DX and your company's focused on ovarian cancer, which has long been a formidable challenge in the world of healthcare. Each year, 225,000 women are diagnosed with ovarian cancer, and it accounts for more deaths than any other cancer of the female reproductive system. So can you tell us why has early screening for this particular cancer been just so elusive? You know, um, Lisa, that's a fantastic question. And I think there are a lot of, a lot of things we can talk to. Number one is we've all heard about lack of research, lack of funding, right? If we're not studying the problem, if we're not investing money, and that can be both in the form of grant funding and government resources, as well as venture funding or other types of funding, if we're not putting money towards it. It's very hard to solve those kind of problems. Um, and then the biology is incredibly challenging. The way that ovarian cancer presents itself, as well as the inability to do a biopsy in a traditional, you know, other type of cancer where you may be able to go in non-invasively. You can't do that in ovarian cancer. You have to surgically remove the full fallopian tube and ovary. So there's an element of biology. Um, so, you know, among many other reasons, it's been one of those areas where compounded. It's a very hard cancer. It's a very hard biology and women's health is severely underfunded and under-researched. Put that all together and we're where we are today, which is you stated them, the outcomes are terrible. 80% of the women are diagnosed when they're stage three and four, when we now know from published literature that over 90% of women are presenting with symptoms very early to a primary care doctor or an OBGYN. So they're showing up. There just aren't the tools to help the clinicians assess them and guide them through a clinical diagnostic pathway so that they can end up in a place where they can be treated at a time where that treatment can actually save their life. Oriana, your blood test for ovarian cancer is absolutely incredible. Tell us a little bit about the process of taking this innovation from research and development to market adoption. Absolutely. So I'll take just one step back and talk about how ovarian cancer is diagnosed today, and then I'll, I'll share how we're doing it differently. As I mentioned, there is no way to get a biopsy. So if you think perhaps of breast cancer or maybe lung cancer, um, there is a way that you can um, non-invasively go in, which means not fully opening up uh, the body or the tissue, go in to get a sample of that tissue. If, if there's something of concern, it could get sent to the lab and the lab can determine, is this tissue cancerous or is it non-cancerous? And then with that information, the clinician, the doctor, the clinician can go on and make a decision on what to do next with that patient. That doesn't exist in ovarian cancer, right? The only way, if a doctor sees something on imaging, if a woman is complaining of extreme um, um, symptoms, if there is some kind of elevation in blood markers that, you know, is of concern, it's often a wait and see, let's see if it's getting worse. Let's see how, um, how the image is changing on ultrasound. And if, if this is consistent and if it is continuously bad, then at that point, we'll refer her to the next stage. And the reason being that next stage requires the full surgical removal of the fallopian tube and the ovary. And that's a permanent removal. I've had people ask me, like, can they biopsy and, and put it back? And the answer is no, they don't. It's, it's gone. And so doctors are in a really hard place. This woman is sick. She's complaining, but they don't want to send her to surgery if it, in fact, isn't ovarian cancer and they didn't have to do that type of removal. 
And they don't have anything at that juncture, at that point to assess the woman. And that is exactly what our blood test is aiming to do. Professor Saragovi discovered that the biomarkers that we're working with are highly indicative of the presence of ovarian cancer, starting as early as stage one, all the way to stage four. And so what we're beginning is in that symptomatic population, those women that are going to the doctor, they're saying something is wrong. There's an already a, a symptom, an ovarian cancer symptom index that exists. And in that work up, they will be able to include our blood test. And if our blood test reads out positive, there's a high likelihood that the woman has ovarian cancer and it's no more of this wait and see, let's see if it's getting worse, let's see if something is coming up on imaging. It's directly centered oncology that woman needs care ASAP. And if it's a negative, the goal is that with a high specificity assay, you can avoid some of the unnecessary intervention and procedures that go along that pathway. And then to answer your question, what it's been like to bring it forward, I would answer it in the same way. It's a bit of serendipity and a bit of luck and a lot of hard work. We, we met uh, Professor Saragovi, um, you know, through a mentor of ours and, and uh, had been talking to her, you know, the problems that we were trying to solve. And, and she was presenting at a conference in Montreal and serendipity struck and she, she met Professor Saragovi and gave us a call and said, we found what you're looking for, come to Montreal. Um, and luck kicked in because when we had that first call with Professor Saragovi, he was imminently applying for a grant and desperately needed a commercialization partner for that grant. And so, you know, we're like, we jumped on it and then worked super hard for three weeks to get that grant submitted in time. Um, because that's, you know, that's the time frame that we had. Um, and, and that's going to snow snowballed uh, the relationship from there. And then throw in COVID and labs shutting down and remote work and everything in between. Um, and so, and it's been a journey. It's no easy feat. It is incredibly challenging to take an invention from academia that stemmed from an idea and from research and translate that into technology that could become product in the clinic. Because the, the, the requirements, the, the standards are so different at both, right? And so we have to take this idea and this innovation and something that, that proves that it looks like it can work into something that's reproducible, that's safe, that the FDA is going to be okay with, that clinicians are going to be okay with, et cetera, et cetera, that payers are eventually going to reimburse. And that's the, that's the stage that we're in right now. It's translating that, that innovation into an assay that can go into clinic. It's doing the clinical trials. We're actively recruiting our clinical trials um, uh, for uh, FDA clearance down the line. It's engaging with the FDA. It's engaging with payers for reimbursement um, with the hope to actually put this in the clinic in the next few years. So you mentioned about some of the symptoms that women e exhibit with respect to ovarian cancer. Can you tell us what those symptoms are? Absolutely. So the most common symptoms for ovarian cancer are abdominal pain and bloating, early satiety, which means feeling full too quickly after you eat, changes in bowel movement or urinacent frequency, extreme unintended weight loss, and um, abnormal imaging on ultrasound. So they see something on ultrasound and can't tell what it is. And the symptom index, the ovarian cancer symptom index is defined as these happening more than 13 times in a given month period, uh, less than for a year. So this isn't, I felt full after eating pizza and I feel uncomfortable. It's I felt these things 13 times in a month. So a lot, 50% 50, 50 of the month, I was feeling this level of discomfort that led me to go see a doctor. So the idea would be you would experience those symptoms 13 times, tell your doctor, and then they would give you them your test. That, that's, the, that's the goal. Exactly right. 
So, Oriana, you've mentioned that you have a unique approach to ovarian cancer screening. Can you share with us some of the innovative biomarkers you're using and how your diagnostic tool differs from conventional screening methods? Absolutely. So the first um, part of the innovation of what we're working with is this is an entirely new class of biomarkers. Nobody in the world has developed these biomarkers for diagnostic purposes, let alone ovarian cancer. And these are tumor marker gangliosides. And of those, we are studying two specifically, GD2 and GD3, for its correlation with ovarian cancer. Now, that is really, really exciting because it means that we're on the precipice of of new biology, right? Think of over 10 to 15 years ago when people came up with the first circulating tumor DNA markers or the first microRNA markers. So that's where we are. We're breaking ground on novel biology, which, of course, makes it 10 times harder, uh, but really, really exciting because it gives us the potential to crack problems that haven't been cracked before. We're coupling that then with data science by combining these multiple markers as well as clinical factors in an algorithm that allows us to really amplify our accuracy, right? As opposed to it being a standard readout of it's the presence of this and at this level, we're putting it together using AI to be able to really enhance the accuracy of our technology. Oriana, collaborations and partnerships are really essential because they can help expedite the development and deployment of all different types of technologies, let alone life-saving diagnostics like the ones you're pioneering. Talk to us a little bit about some of the collaborations and partnerships that AOA has been involved in. Absolutely. And I couldn't agree more. Collaboration is key to success. Trying to do this as a a standalone company um, would be much slower and, you know, much more difficult. Collaboration for us began at the academic level when we first um, licensed this technology from Professor Sarah Gobi at McGill University. And so really from the get-go, collaboration began by working off of his innovative science and approach, partnering with him, making him a part of AOA as well, and then continuing to grow that research. Collaboration has since expanded, ranging from we have worked with other academic institutions to partner with to do clinical research. We are working today with hospital and OBGYN clinics all over the U.S. and soon internationally as well to enroll patients into a large prospective clinical trial. We work with um, scientists and clinicians on our um, clinical advisory board and our scientific advisory board who advise us and work with us to troubleshoot problems. So, and then we, we also collaborate with industry, right? With our development partners, with strategics, with others um, that really help combine that research and take it to technology. So it is a, it, it is incredibly important in our opinion at AOA to really think about ourselves as part of the ecosystem and not as a standalone unit because we will not succeed alone. We need to do this as a group because collectively we can move things forward much more effectively. So, Oriana, besides the tremendous medical impact, early diagnosis of ovarian cancer could have a really significant financial implication for the healthcare system and its insurers by allowing treatment to begin so much earlier How do you envision your diagnostic tool changing this landscape? Absolutely. You mentioned the first one, which is exactly the point about um, treatment costs being significantly lower for early stage disease than for late stage disease. So not only is ovarian cancer the second most expensive cancer to treat, second only to brain cancer, 
the recurrence rate of ovarian cancer at late stage disease, stage three and four, is 96%. So the majority of women who are caught at late stage are going to um, uh, reoccur. Whereas those lucky few today that are diagnosed stage one and two, their recurrence rate is only 14%. So we know that if we develop a tool that is able to stage shift and diagnose these patients earlier, moving them from stage three and stage four diagnosis to stage one and stage two, not only does the healthcare system save an immense amount of money in treatment costs, but also in in reoccurrence costs. You know, that's fascinating. I never would have thought ovarian cancer was the second most expensive cancer to treat after brain cancer. I would have thought there were a lot of other cancers like a liver cancer or maybe a lung cancer, but that that's really interesting. Yeah, it, it's, um, it's fascinating. It's sad. And it's also, I mean, think about the two statistics we've talked about today. Ovarian cancer is one of the largest killers of gynecological cancer. And it's also the most one of the most expensive. And that's why your test is so important because it can make a tremendous impact, not only in saving lives, but also in terms of the financial impact as well on the healthcare system. So given that you have these unique biomarkers for ovarian cancer, do you have any plans to, to use your diagnostic platform to address other types of cancer or medical conditions? We very much do. So ovarian cancer is just the beginning for us. You know, as I mentioned, the tumor marker gangliosides have never been developed or exploited for diagnosis before. We're looking at two for ovarian cancer, but our platform and our methodologies allow us to explore all the other untapped markers as well, some which have been identified and some which we are beginning to identify ourselves. So we're really, really excited about this potential. We know that we're fundamental believers in the hypothesis that you don't really have a platform until you have a product, right? Otherwise, you're it's all ideas and let's actually see something that works. So we're a hyper-focused team to show the value of this technology by our ovarian cancer test. And um, we are continuously also doing research and discovery and exploring where else this technology will take us. You know, Oriana, I think uh, the whole world really developed an appreciation for the importance of diagnostics during the pandemic. And um, I'm curious how kind of this shift in perception in terms of the importance of diagnostics affected the development and recognition of your technology. I, I definitely think it was very fitting that when we were started the company in 2020, 2021, when we were first raising money, the world was hyper aware of the power of diagnostics. I do still think there's an enormous amount of work to be done um, because it is just the beginning of the wave uh, and the challenges that exist in, in diagnostics haven't ceased to exist, right? So the regulatory landscape is often unclear between LDTs and IVDs. The reimbursement landscape is no easy feat. Um, those things haven't gone away just because people are talking about it more. So what? well, I think that the wind in... Um, in knowledge and in appreciation is super helpful. We need to continue to work on it to translate that into actionable um, improvement that actually help the development of diagnostics. Because oftentimes diagnostics end up being sort of the underdog of the life science industry, right? Medical devices take less money, get to market faster. Therapeutics, a lot riskier, but a lot bigger of a bang if you succeed. Diagnostics, we kind of sit somewhere in the middle. But the reality is the healthcare system cannot function without us. What are you treating? What are you operating on? What are you intervening on if you do not know where the problem is? And I think that connection of information to value is still missing in our healthcare system today. Oh, I completely agree. 
As a podcast comes to a close, Oriana, do you have any advice for any aspiring entrepreneurs, especially those who are interested in the biotech and healthcare sectors? I would say the thing that helped me the most in my career was working for people and working with people that I could learn from, that I respected, and that really valued me to teach me and help grow my career. I, I often go to networking events today where there's a lot of, tr- I see a lot of trends of sort of up and coming folks who say, I want to, I want to work in women's health or I want to work in femtech. And, and I think, um, while the industry itself is super, super exciting, I would challenge people and say, find somebody you want to work for because that gives you the opportunity to learn. The industry isn't going to teach you. The buzzwords aren't going to teach you. Somebody who's going to take you under their wing and 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 teach you and guide you and learn from the good and the bad is going to be the most valuable thing you can take into your career. And before I let you go, Oriana, I wanted to say congratulations to you because I saw on your website that you were uh, a part of the Bloomberg New Economies 2023 class of catalysts. And for those of our listeners who not, might not be familiar with this award, This award recognizes talented individuals who have envisioned more equitable, inclusive, and sustainable outcomes and have demonstrated the drive and tenacity to achieve them. And I think you are most deserving of that award. So congratulations again. Thank you so much, Lisa. I appreciate that. Well, Oriana, thank you so much again for being on the podcast today and talking to us about the incredible work that's happening at AOA DX. Thank you. It was so lovely to be here. As we continue to celebrate Hispanic innovators, stay tuned for more engaging conversations during this special Hispanic Heritage Month series. Thanks for listening to Autumn on the Air with Lisa Mueller. Get social with us and share your thoughts. You can tweet us at AUTM or visit us online at AUTM.net. We'll be back next week on the air. Be sure to join us. 